There are a lot of people who lie and get away with it. Over the North Atlantic, toward the east coast of the United States. This week on Inside Jobs, Brian, Jean, and Lee investigate the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to host a semi-comedic conspiracy podcast about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre with a bunch of guys from the old neighborhood. There was civilian investigator Eugene Frankie Five Angels O'Neill. Oh, I say hello now. And conspiracy expert Lee the Jew Golden. Put one of yours in the hospital, you put one of theirs in the morgue. That's the podcast way. Me? I'm historian Brian Lane. We were a bunch of inside jobs fellas. <laughs> oh, that was terrible. Sorry, everyone, but welcome to Inside Jobs. But uh, yeah, no, we are uh, we are talking about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre uh, in observance of the upcoming holiday. Oh boy, do you guys have Valentines? I have a Valentine. Brian has a Valentine. I wish I had a Valentine. Yeah, I have a date with my books. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna crush your dick between two dictionaries. <laughs> Encyclopedia Britannica's. Be fair, Gene. Uh, yeah. Okay. On on in under the L entry for loneliness, um, <laughs> which uh, is five hundred pages right, of Brian's face. It's right <laughs> next to Lane, comma Brian. <laughs> oh boy, <See> loneliness. <laughs> Brian um, printed out his own encyclopedia entry for himself and taped it into his Encyclopedia Britannica when he was a kid. Oh God, <laughs> not, that's not far from the truth. Uh, but yeah, so today we are talking about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre when seven men were brutally gunned down in gangland Chicago during the Prohibition era. And this is kind Has of... anybody ever like gently or exquisitely gunned down? <laughs> uh, uh, the movie Dick Tracy during that sooner or later or that back in business scene. I thought that was very beautiful music by Sondheim, well orchestrated, good you know, good singing from Madonna. I think that was pretty well done. I think the tenderest gunning down I've seen is in Jackie Brown when Samuel L. Jackson shoots Robert De Niro after saying, "What happened to you, man? You used to be beautiful." <laughs> oh yeah, that was like pretty tender. Yeah, um, tender down. But so to talk about the. These horrible gangland slangs. We are going to talk a little bit about the introduction of prohibition, uh, the prohibition of alcohol that lasted in the United States from 1920 to 1933, and how that gave rise to organized crime in uh, the United States, specifically, but not exclusively, uh, organized crime as perpetrated by Italian Americans. So pause the show right now, hop on a Netflix, watch Kevin Burns' several hour, hours miniseries about Prohibition that starts like 100 years before it actually started, <laughs> and then come on back a day later and listen to this show. Yeah, that's actually Ken Burns. Wh uh, who did I say? You said Kevin. Oh, uh, Kevin Burns. Burn. Kevin Burns <laughs> is a guy who uh, I think does uh, documentaries on like uh, – uh, movie DVDs, so never mind. Yeah, that's enough. Ken Burns' less successful brother. He's basically <laughs> the... Um, <laughs> fuck, who's <laughs> Sylvester Stallone's brother? Frank Stallone. Frank, Frank Stallone, Stallone doesn't, yeah. Doesn't Jordan know Frank Stallone? Doesn't he have like a good Frank Stallone story? Yeah, I that's think... His, it's his dad. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Frank Stallone is... is we got to bring him back on the show and get some of that Stallone dirt. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so... Uh, just in talking about Prohibition, Prohibition has a lengthy history in the United States, as one might expect, uh, given the fact that um, a lot of the earliest colonial sett settlers, so in the 1600s, were, um, as, I, as I recently saw them described in contemporary literature, the hotter sort of Protestant, meaning Puritans who... Uh, looked looked poorly on uh, consuming alcohol, and temperance societies were 
you know, fairly popular throughout the history of this country, uh, especially it was all the rage with the teens back then. <laughs> Straight edge teens. Uh, yeah, they would just go to hardcore shows and draw X's on their hands and uh, not vote. Uh, but the so in the 19th century, temperance societies became fairly popular, specifically because of the rise of organized women's movements. Um, women's movements who are looking uh, women always ruining our fun. Can't live with them. Can't drink with them around. Also, um, but they but uh, there there this was a very popular sub cause of suffrage movements because. Um, a lot of women, specifically people like Carrie Nation, yes, who, who was a she famous, has the best name. <laughs> yeah, she was a famous. Um, she was a famous temperance, uh, what is known as a dry activist, uh, and she would carry around a hatchet. Emphasis on dry. Am I right, guys? <laughs> oh boy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and she would go barrel busting with her hatchet. There's yeah, like she... some cool film footage, I believe, of her doing this. Yeah. Um. And uh, basically, the reason that it was popular amongst women is because women were. Uh, it wasn't as socially acceptable for women to drink in public or really even in private at the time. Uh, women. And they were, were victimized by exactly. the, the culture of drinking. The men would go out. They'd spend all of the the money that should have been going to the family on alcohol and they would come home and, and then abuse their wives and children. So there was some, some good reasons why um, temperance was, um, you know, something that, that the women's movement would support at this time. Yeah, it was, it was often portrayed as a moralist perspective as opposed to what, what so-called wet activists would say later in that it was a question of personal freedoms and choice. Uh, right. The uh, the temperance movements really relied on that idea that uh, by by prohibiting alcohol, the sale of alcohol in this country, it specifically would, for loco, <laughs> it, <laughs> it would it would increase the it would decrease crime and it would increase the well being of women and children across the country. Yeah. Uh, so that continued for quite some time, and then in. Um, the uh, like right around the period of World War One, there was first there was a law that was passed actually after the uh, armistice agreement, but uh, it was intended to limit the sale of uh, alcohol sold over like two point seven five percent content alcoholic beverages, uh, and the intention was to preserve grain for the war effort. And so that caught on, but then our boys in green really needed that sweet grain. But so following that, the you know these these dry activists gained a little bit more cachet, working with Republican and Democratic politicians in Washington, and they finally worked up the support to pass the Eighteenth Amendment outlawing the sale of alcohol mm-hmm. uh so this happened in uh oh you know 1920 but um what's funny is that the amendment itself required subsequent legislation to make it enforceable because the amendment d- did not define what you know alcoholic beverages actually were and so subsequent to that there was the volstead law which was um Basically, all of the specifics that were required for the enforcement of prohibition. It defined what alcoholic beverages were. It uh, allowed for the sale of um, alcohol under prescription, so for medicinal purposes. Uh, <laughs> sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, it, and, it, and it added not, not exactly loopholes, but it, uh, it allowed for certain other things to, you know chemists to use alcohol and that sort of thing manischewitz baby can't stop the bar mitzvah flow yo (laughs) um but so some some specific things that will be important in our discussion of prohibition are that it wasn't illegal to consume alcohol um but it was illegal to produce uh sell or transport across state and federal uh boundaries right it was illegal so like to sing the song. The street. Yeah. Sorry, go yeah. ahead, Gene. If you found some in the street, that was okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually like um, there were some pretty clever uh, ways around it. So 
wine grapes were still allowed to be grown because they could be made into non-alcoholic juice. And so a lot of uh, these like California vintners would sell juice with a warning label uh, um, posted on it that would say, like, do not follow these steps or you will (laughs) accidentally produce an alcoholic beverage. And it, (laughs) it basically had instructions for people to ferment the grapes that they were, uh, you know, the grape juice that they were purchasing and turn it into a fortified wine. Kind of like how Dare taught me how to do drugs. <laughs> it made it, it made, it made drinking wine seem just super cool. And right. it also took an hour out of class every Friday when the Dare officer showed up. Well, they had like a chart with like joints and pills. And it was like, we're, we're all like taking notes. Like, so, okay, that's a joint. Do All not right, pass that's... the duchy to the left-hand side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were teaching like all of the, all of the, uh, the etiquette. Like you got to help your friend light the bong. Okay, this is how you make a gravity bong. All this right, is guys. how you work the carb. Yes. Um. So, w- people still wanted to drink following prohibition. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, really? Ob- I mean, they, they obviously, couldn't, they couldn't outlaw the desire to be drunk. <laughs> Yeah, they couldn't outlaw the desire to want to be able to dance better. Um, (laughs) Or at least think you're dancing better. (laughs) And so while a lot of wealthy people were able to procure stocks of liquor for their liquor cabinets before the law went into effect, because remember, consuming your own supply, okay. Um, But uh, a lot of people, you know, like blue-collar workers and certainly immigrants, were eager to drink... And this black market suddenly opened up. Uh, Whereas Prohibition was initially enforced much harder and more stringently in like the southern United States and the Midwest where it had... um, Where shit sucks. (laughs) Where where the, the religious populations were some of the people that had been instrumental in getting Prohibition passed. Uh, Large, you know, cosmopolitan cities, specifically on the West Coast and places like... Um, Chicago, uh, New York City, Boston, they didn't enforce it as hard until the Volstead Act passed. And then suddenly, you know, the alcohol dried up and the speakeasies started to pop up. And speakeasies were illegal establishments that were, uh, you know, set up as clubs or, you know, social gathering places uh, that happened to sell illegal booze. They were places that hipsters in San Francisco go to on bachelor parties so that we feel cool. Yeah. Well, it's just not just San Francisco. Boy, right. that is just everywhere. That's just and a thing. terrible. Um, <laughs> I feel like uh, this generation, we're going to like have prohibition again just so booze is cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, it is funny if you look at the time period that prohibition took place because it is a time known as the Roaring Twenties. Uh, it's a it's a time of you know relative uh, relative change revolutionary changes in social order in terms of women's place in society and the amount of economic prosperity that was coming to this country that allowed for more people to get a leg up. Um, you know, Great Gatsby was a thing. Great Gatsby was a thing. The big party. Um, all of all of those sorts of things were happening at the time, and yet officially, alcohol sales were illegal. Um, mm-hmm. And so, the to- last decade of jazz that Woody Allen would recognize as real music. <laughs> place. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, okay, let's just put a ban on Woody Allen jokes from here on out, though, because yes. that shit is yeah, good point, sad good point. and terrible. Right. Um, um, but uh, but uh, so in order to supply speakeasies. Um, you know, the black market re- recognized that there was uh, a, a public thirsty for booze. And so they began to do um... famous mobster, public thirsty, <laughs> put the roar in the roaring 20s. We call them legs because <laughs> he had them <laughs> all the way up because he walked on them. <laughs> he was always uh... walking on his legs. <laughs> um, but uh, but so uh Organized crime in this country obviously didn't start with the 20s. Uh, it started with Marlon Brando. But it, w- <laughs> yeah, reading off a cue card. Um, but no, it, 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 what, what, what is interesting, though, is that organized crime hadn't seen the levels of success before Prohibition. Because 
Organized crime was running, you know, confidence tricks and games. They were running gambling, prostitution, certainly uh, all sorts of various fraudulent activities um, and often violent as well. But it Mm -hmm. hadn't been able to get the kind of profits that it saw during Prohibition. Right. It was mostly just sending emails to old ladies saying that there was a bunch of money in escrow in North Africa. Yeah. Uh, The... uh, the kind of crime, you know, the kind of criminal uh, organizations that popped up in this country, as anyone who has seen any movie ever probably <laughs> understands, is that they were based out of, uh, you know, mostly. For in- instance, the Rugrats movie or uh, <laughs> All Dogs Go to Heaven. Ten Things I Hate About You. Um, no, uh, th- these were, for the most part, immigrant communities, specifically like uh, ostracized immigrant communities. So the Irish, Jews, Italians, who had, uh, and certainly Asians, as uh, you know, more Chinese started to move into the country. But these were immigrant communities that were ostracized from mainstream society and weren't afforded the kinds of protection that um, you know, wasp waspy mainstream american society was afforded and so they bounded together to operate you know essentially as businessmen but uh engaged in criminal activities and working through complex networks of hierarchical control and the kind of you know mythological things that we see in movies like the godfather and uh shows like the soprano so like the code of omerta, the code of silence, and uh, no the, snitches. Yeah, no, stop snitching. Basically, it's basically Cameron, Cameron the thing, um, and prob- eating ZD with our pinkies extended, <laughs> <laughs> wetting your beaks. Um, <laughs> so, as the as the um, you know predominantly Italian American organized crime started to look to booze as a thing to really capitalize on, we start to see this you know flourishing of what has come to be known as the mafia. And so, Lee, I I, I don't know if you ha- w- want to get in here with sort of the origins of uh, the Chicago mafia sure. and Al Capone. Well, the, uh, you know, Al Capone, Alfonso Capone, you know, he was the son of like a barber and, uh, you know, his um, his mother and father were, by all accounts, law-abiding citizens. Uh, they uh, immigrated to the United States, to uh, New York, Brooklyn, um, grew up in a really horrible neighborhood. Eventually, when he was about 10 years old, they But back then, all a- neighborhoods were horrible. Right, exactly. Um and, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, the typical uh, immigrant experience for a, for a first-generation Italian individual. When he was about 10 years old, they sort of moved up a little bit uh, economically, moved to a slightly better neighborhood. Uh, Capone was um, immediately involved in, you know, youth street gangs and uh, would engage in, in various activities. And from an early age, he was, he was big, but he was also smart. Um, and a lot of these guys were big, but not a lot of them were smart. And he also... Although he turned to crime at an early age, beating people up, stealing, he had this kind of bizarre desire to be seen as a heroic figure. There's a story about a, a woman whose washboard was stolen, an old woman, and he marched across town and him and his gang stole the washboard back from this rival gang and they marched it through the street in this kind of parade to you know, make themselves look um Look the good. Gangs were always stealing washboards, <laughs> yeah, so they could start bands. Um, <laughs> That's how the Beatles got started. Yeah, they stole a washboard from a from a lady, uh, and then moved to Hamburg and got haircuts. But anyway, so um, he got involved in crime. Eventually, he had to move out of, of Brooklyn to um, to Chicago, and Chicago was divided uh, between and, the uh, north side. And, and for Brooklyn hipsters, he was born in uh, Williamsburg, of all places. Yeah, which exactly. was which was like a tough, hard oh, man. The hardcore. original hipster. Yeah, he was the yeah. original hipster. His keys were always hanging out of the side of his pockets. He wore ironic T-shirts. Um, he wore women's jeans. No, this is not true. <laughs> uh, but so he moved to Chicago in 1919, the same time that the man I'm named after, uh, Lee Edelson, uh, Lee Sanger Edelson, was. Uh, at Chicago University with, I believe, Elliot Ness at the same time, um, and. In Chicago, the mob sort of ruled the city. There was the, the North Side was the Irish gangs, 
Um, and the south side was the Italian gangs. And at this time, they were run by a guy named uh, Colissimo. And Colissimo was not originally into, um, you know, he was, he had speakeasies, but he was not so into uh, um, actually doing the, the bootlegging. He was kind of just happy with his being as, as rich as he was. Um, and then the guy who worked under him, this guy, Johnny Torrio, um, put uh, Al Capone as his second in command. And then together they took out Colissimo and took over the south side of Chicago. Um, and and just, so just just as a warning to everyone, <laughs> um, because of the violent nature of organized crime at this time, uh, people sort of come into the story for a brief second and then Im- immediately are killed. Uh, And it's like a cavalcade of hard-to-remember names. Uh, Like, there's a bunch of Italian names and Irish names and Polish names. Uh, So it can be a little tricky to keep track of, but we will try to keep the story as understandable as possible. And a couple of guys on the the north side, the Italian – or I'm sorry, the Irish guys, there was Dean O'Banion. He was the big guy. And then also another name to remember is Bugs Moran. And, uh, and the thing uh, about Jaime Weiss, <laughs> who was not Jewish, but for some reason yeah. took on this like Jewish moniker. He was a, um, a Polish Catholic. Yeah, bizarre. Um, so, but the 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 mob was allowed to rule the city because there was a guy named Big Bill Thompson who who was the mayor, and um, you know he kind of just let thing let the mob kind of take over. Now, and, and, I mean, of, it's 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 unfair to say he just let them take over because there is, you know, corruption involved. Sure. I mean, he was definitely uh, this um, is fucking Chicago. We're talking about. Yeah, that's the Chicago way. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, as I stated, the guy I'm named after Lee Sanger, Lee Sanger Edelson uh, was there. Um, but also his I think his uncle or his cousin was a guy named Samuel Edison. Um, and I think he was like a state senator, and he also actually served in the um, the uh, Thompson administration, and oh, wow. uh, he was corporation counsel in uh, in uh, 1915. Yes, he was in the state senate in the third district from 1910 to 1914, and 1915 became corporation counsel for Chicago under Mayor Thompson. There's a story about one one night Mayor Thompson was so fucking drunk that uh, my distant cousin Samuel Edelson actually took over the town for the night. Wow, really? But, <laughs> and then Samuel Edelson, he like I think he was a lawyer, and he later went on during the Leah Loa murders, um, was helping the family uh, of the victims um, sort of deal with that whole thing. And I found out about this. I was like looking up all this shit this morning because I remember that my family was involved in it. You remembered, found, oh shit, I need to research for the show. <laughs> the irony is that I um, was looking it up and I found a link and it was like, it's had a mention to the of the, the St. Valentine's Day massacre and the crime of the century, Leah Loeb and Sam uh, uh, Edelson Lee, and Lee, Lee Edelson. Leopold and Loeb. Right, what did I say? Lee and Loeb. Yes, that's when that's when me and my gay lover killed this kid for no uh, reason. For no reason, just so we wanted to be in a Hitchcock movie that was all shot in ten takes, but it looked like one take. Something, something, Jimmy Stewart. So anyway, I'm like looking this up, and then I finally find an article that mentions all this stuff, and it's tagged with all this stuff, and I'm like, oh great! I look at it, and guess who wrote the article? Uh, Carl Sandburg. No, I wrote the article. I wrote the article what? for like this. I wrote the article for this uh, website uh, that I used to write for called Half Remembered Stories. It was part of like the new Jewish filmmaking project, and wow. I was like, "Oh, no wonder this is exactly what I was looking for." I forgot that I wrote this article five years ago. So, <laughs> your anyway. your SEO content production days. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I optimized the searches so that I could find my own shit five years later. <laughs> That's when you realized you had a double. <laughs> yes, that guy from the Nixon administration. <laughs> uh, so, so, um, I've, I got a little sidetracked on the story. So, the mayor is le- allowing the mob to sort of uh, flex its mu- muscle in the north and the south, and right. uh, the I can't remember his name. The South Side guy who was taken out, Colissimo. Uh, yeah, he was taken out by who? Uh, Torio. He was taken out by Johnny Torio. Johnny Torio, who Giovanni Torio, Papa Johnny, who became who became the boss of the of the Southside gang, and 
had Capone acting as his lieutenant. Right. And he got betrayed by, I think, O'Banion. So they had this um, near beer factory that used to be a beer factory. And basically they would pay bribes so that they could actually make beer out of this factory. So I believe O'Banion said to Torrio, um, I'll sell you this place. Just come on over this night. So he comes to the, the, the brewery. They exchange the money, some $100,000 or something like that. Uh, O'Banion takes the money. And the thing is that he had tipped the cops. And the thing is that Torrio had a prior uh, with bootlegging. So the cops, when they came in, they arrested uh, Torrio. So O'Banion got the money and basically got the money, sold him this brewery that then got shut down by the cops. So he sold him a bill of goods, essentially. And then Torrio got um, sent to jail, but not before he... um, was shot, not killed in a <laughs> Wait, he in a was hit. killed and then sent to jail? No, he was shot but not killed in this hit. They oh. sent him to jail and he basically <laughs> decided, I give up, I'm going to do my one-year term, and you know, Capone's in charge. So this is basically how Capone gets in charge. And uh, Capone obviously uh, wants vengeance. And Capone had like a very specific modus operandi for taking people out. He was very deliberate. Um, and he, he yeah, uh, it, it's it's easy to th- see something like um, like uh, like the Sopranos or Goodfellas and see these murders that seem to happen, you know, via caprice, caprice or whim. Um, mm-hmm. But in this era, by big boy caprice and Dick Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was great! Bravo. Um, no, in in this era, like and specifically Capone. Uh, murders and other operations were rigorously planned and he would have, you know, sit down sessions in his, you know, country estates in uh, Florida or yeah, in Florida. Or um, they would also go to like the random hotels in the Midwest and like buy out mm-hmm. the whole hotel and they would sit down and over weeks plan out every detail of these murders and operations. Yeah, his, so. his, uh, his sort of his hitman was this guy, uh, Frankie Vale, or no, Frankie Yale, um, whose name was like Francesco Aioli or something like that. But they all had these kind of Americanized names. And, and, uh, called him Frank- Frankie Yale because he was always matriculating to Yale. <laughs> yeah. And I think he actually ran a club called like the Harvard Club as kind of like a fuck you to his own name or something like that. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, fuck me. <laughs> and he this was will show me. And he was, and this was a, a standard thing because Yale was based in New York, and he was a, a New York uh, uh, gangster. But yeah. uh, they would uh, bring in people from out of town f- specifically for murders, so that they could Im- immediately turn around and leave and get out of the state because you know. Uh, that would have well, to. He left the state. <laughs> no, that's honestly because <laughs> at the time there was no. Uh, the FBI was still in its infancy, and there, the Aww. the kind of bureaucracy and the kind of legal uh, recourse for uh, in law enforcement agencies to get someone in another state was really mm-hmm. complicated. So that was a, a method that they used to you know commit these crimes and then get away with them immediately. Yeah, what a great time to be alive. <laughs> So he ran a I, – I believe that o- O'Banion also ran a flower shop. And there was – and the thing about mob funerals at the time, they were always kind of doing this pharaoh-like thing um, where they would try to they outdo each other. They would build a pyramid. Right. <laughs> where they would marry Mia Pharaoh but then marry their own – no, okay. Oh, God. Uh, but, I, no, we have a ban on those. All right. That, we have a ban. That, that, that. <laughs> There's a prohibition on that. Um, so they were always trying to outdo each other with these um, – these massive funerals and O'Banion, like I think he ran this flower shop and um, Yale and these two murderers, um, they basically went into his um, flower shop. Um, the two guys were – John, John Scalise and Albert, Albert Anselme or Anselmi. They, they were, were a good team. Yeah, they were known as the murder twins. <laughs> yeah, not twins, but definitely murdered. So in um, so all these guys, all three of these guys, they ordered like tens of thousands of dollars of flowers for this other funeral. They go into um, Obanio's flower shop, and they did. And this was November tenth, two 
1924, according to my notes. So he's he's in there like clipping uh, flowers, and they Yale goes in for a handshake, and when he grabs the hand he grabs him for the handshake, he holds onto a banyo so that Obanyo can't grab guns, and Obanyo always had three guns on him, which is a badass fucking thing to do. Um, <laughs> so while he's grabbing onto Obanyo, and Obanyo can't grab his hand, his guns, um, and then the murder twins just fucking shoot the shit out of him, and then they get out. And uh, that's how they take down Obanyo. And I think this is, might have been when Bugs Moran took over. Or Bug, it was when, when well, Jaime... That, that, yeah, that was then Jaime Weiss took Jaime over. took over, right. And then uh, when Jaime got taken out, that's when Bugs Moran took over. And so, as, uh, as Lisa, this is like 1924. And what's so crazy about this is... Um, is that it's crazy. <laughs> it, it's, it's already crazy. But uh, at the time, you couldn't show you know disrespect to even rival gang members and especially even like people that you knew had murdered your you know your fellow gang member or even your you own could only give them the look yeah so uh, capone went to the funeral and sat through the whole thing like, giving him the look yeah just like cash cash sitting there <laughs> just cash he was wearing a cardigan <laughs> Um, oh, we I, should mention that he was also Scarface, that like the character Scarface is based on him because he had this razor, scar yeah. on his face from this time he like hit on this uh, lady and like said her ass was really nice in front of a bunch of people and her brother like slashed his face. And he was always very conscious of his self-conscious about the scar and would wear makeup and he would only allow himself to be photographed from the right side. And he hated the name Scarface. But mm-hmm. side note. Uh, so Just like we hate the movie Scarface. <laughs> God. <laughs> Man, is that movie bad. Um, Fuck you, man, it's great. No, it's true. So anyway, um, Jaime Weiss took over the Northside gang. And he, as we said, he was the, you know, had this Jewish name, but he was a Polish Catholic. I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce his last name. Um, Walter Sobchak. (laughs) Um, And he also, you know, ran... uh, you know, ran the Northside gang for a while, and eventually he was assassinated by uh, a Tommy gun. And we should talk a little bit about the Tommy gun. Ah, uh, the uh, Thompson submachine gun. The Thompson submachine the... gun, a.k.a. the Chicago typewriter. Yes. <laughs> oh, man, what a great nickname. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Um, so and... the Tommy gun really kind of invented the drive-by shootings. They had yeah. this very light um, machine gun um, that, you know, originally, I think it was invented kind of to bust up stalemates during World War One, I. I think the, I don't know if it was invented during World War One. I. I think it might have been afterwards. But the... yeah, it was uh, it was invented during World War One, uh, and it was nicknamed during that conflict the trench sweeper, right? As opposed to the trench buster or trench breaker, which was the shotgun. Um, but uh, essentially, it originally had the kind of straight clip. But we always. In popular culture, we remember the Tommy gun as having that circular clip. The, dr- um, the drum magazine. Exactly. Um, so, so, so it, it, it just uh, – they because it was made for the army, uh, they produced like 15,000 of them. And it was relatively inexpensive to purchase. And it became like the one of the weapons of choice for organized crime throughout the yeah. country. And so, easy to shoot. Yeah. Really? It, it it could it could shoot. I think the rate of fire was like a hundred rounds uh, in eight seconds or something like that. Uh, yeah. Very fast, easy to shoot. Just bursts of uh, sub-automatic fire. You can uh, still get plastic versions of them at uh, Spirit Halloween stores, but only for a couple months. <laughs> uh, and um, you know, you'll see a lot of uh, 20s and 30s era gangsters uh, yeah. using them. The cops them. started using them, too, because they, they cops, needed yeah. to. And, and it, it lasted, kind of an arms race. It lasted through the – like, it was a, a service weapon during World War II for American GIs. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it was it was the weapon of choice, and it was all over Chicago. Uh, you know, apparently the Northside Gang and Capone's Gang in the South had submachine guns and they just uh, – t- uh, Tommy guns, and they just used them. All the time. Michael Jordan was also known to favor the Tommy gun. <laughs> but uh, Rocky was not known to favor uh, Tommy gun in uh, <laughs> five. That's why he beat the shit out of him in the middle of the street. <laughs> son. Wow. Bravo. Scarface is not a bad movie. Rocky five is a bad movie. <laughs> 
Um, so Scarface is pretty shitty too. So uh, Jaime Weiss was murdered in uh, mid like a uh, two years two years after O'Banion, and he was in a hotel room, and yeah, a guy with a submachine gun just opened fire on his hotel room. He staggered out and was he filled him full of lead, and then yeah, he he pumped his guts full of lead. Uh, and so then we do have Bugs Moran who takes over. And this is the 1920s, so it's definitely a period of time where uh, someone can be named Bugs and also be a vicious criminal. <laughs> uh, which I guess Bugs Bunny is kind of a sociopath, if you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> and that little rascal, Bugs something. Yeah, or Bugsy Siegel, another uh, uh, gangster who met a violent end. Or um, Bugs Life, the shitty Pixar movie. Ooh, it's not as bad as Cars 2. Nothing's uh, as bad as Cars 2. <laughs> Except for Scarface. Uh, so uh, this guy, George Moran, he was, uh, you know, took over the north side. He had been working with O'Banion and Jaime Weiss since they were like 16. They had been involved in organized crime for ages. Um, and so he was, you know, once he became the head of the... Um, the the Northside gang, he began to, you know, dress really fancy, uh, started to, you know, he married Eat carrots, <laughs> started to repeat back what you had said to him in an effort to confuse you. <laughs> um, no, but Put he post-it notes on the other actors to remember his lines. He became, he became a really like flashy dresser and a flashy society man. It was the Chicago newspapers were all over these, you know, gangland um, activities, and he would he and Capone became rivals, and this rivalry was played up in the media to really, yeah. you know, show them as these, you know, violent criminals, but who also had a little bit of class and a little bit of, um, you know, charisma that could be played up in the media, and so he was also kind of insane, um, like. Not not mentally insane, but like the kind of audacious things that he would pull yeah. uh, were pretty crazy. Uh, we so, should mention that there was uh, like a, this one reporter who was always going after the mob, and uh, he was one of the few ones that didn't try to like romanticize these guys. So Capone beat the, had his guys beat the shit out of this guy, and then when he woke up in the hospital, uh, Capone had paid for his hospital bill and bought the guy's newspaper, <laughs> which I think is like a great side story to this whole shit. What a guy. Um, so, you know, the Moran and Capone had had a sit down to kind of establish borders and they basically separated the city in two. Um, but Buddha and Pesht. <laughs> Will no, in, will no. anyone like that joke? Probably not. Don't laugh at Just that. Just like one dude in Budapest. It's like, ha, ha, ha. Anyway. That joke was not a conspiracy between the co-hosts of Inside Jobs. Lee acted alone. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. With so, the Arrow Cross Party of Hungary. So, so they... Uh... They divided the city and they, you know, divided the territory, but there were border fights all the time, you know, people crossing, you know, going further north or further south to engage in criminal activity. But also because they needed to import a lot of, you know, like Canadian whiskey or whiskey coming from uh, the northeast or, you know, other things that were coming from New York and elsewhere in the country. You know, the the Moran gang would go outside of town and hijack a shipment of Capone's whiskey or, you know, Capone would do the same to Moran. And so there were a lot of external, uh, you know, rivalries. And so they would have these sit down meetings where they would, you know, it would get to a point where each side had committed a number of uh, infractions against the other. That escalated to murders, and then they would, yeah, and then well, and then they would have a sit down, and they would agree to a truce. And Moran was kind of ballsy, and would just like break the truce within hours. Sometimes, uh, you know, like I think there was one occasion where they had a sit down to sort of settle the settle squash the beef. And as they were sitting down, Moran's gang was hijacking a truck right outside of town. Right. Um. So there was a lot of bad blood between these two guys, and. Because, and also just a lot of blood. 
<laughs> yeah. Sort of fucking shooting everyone with Tommy guns. Because there were so there was so much business available in the city, you'll find these quotes by Capone and Moran that are they'll say stuff like you there's know, plenty like, of booze to make or whatever. Yeah, there's plenty of business in the city. It's it's uh, unfortunate that sometimes, you know, people can come into conflict with one another. We should have peaceful business because then everyone wins. But at the sign... Peaceful at, crime. Yeah, at the same time, yeah, there were pimping, pimping women and, you know, yeah. selling o- overpriced booze that they had smuggled into the country. If you want a good example of how this worked, just watch the original series Star Trek episode, A Piece of the Action. <laughs> what? It's where they uh, the crew beams down to this planet where the people on the planet found a book about gangsters from the twenties, oh, yeah. and they like build their whole society based on a Chicago mob. Yeah, that is something that exists. Yep. Um. So let's sort of move into when it's coming down to like why Capone made such a big move in orchestrating the St. Valentine's Massacre. It was really romantic, by the way. <laughs> well, it it seems that it got to the point where Capone, you know, Capone had survived a number of assassination attempts uh, to the point that he even purchased um, an armored Cadillac. Oh, my God. This shit is so cool. <laughs> There's footage of this out there. Like, after he finally went to jail, like the FBI or someone like uh captured it or they impounded act- yeah it. they actually impounded it and then gave it to fdr <laughs> because they said that like capone was actually better protected than the president at the time they mm-hmm. made a special quote about that mm-hmm. um and what was it coolidge at the time coolidge like wanted to take him out like he made it like kind of a big priority to take capone he out personally wanted to take him out well well that actually yeah. that actually sort of happened after the massacre so oh okay uh, I'm, but, getting, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself getting, getting ahead of yourself so yeah so capone had this armored car um he had survived assassination attempts and some of these are crazy like his car was driving down the street and a couple of dudes you know ran up alongside it with tommy guns and just blasted the hell out of it but he but he wasn't in it yeah it wasn't in the car um so he started traveling under you know like assumed names he would leave the city at random times all sorts of stuff in order to avoid um the you know violent hits that uh, moran was putting out on him we should try we should talk about the one with the blanks where like a car drove by shot them then they were like, what the fuck? There was no bullets in there. It was blanks. Mm-hmm. But then a bunch of other cars drove by and started shooting real bullets. But miraculously, no one was hurt. I think, or no one was killed. I think one guy was hurt in that, that attempted hit. Yeah. Uh, so eventually it gets to the point where Capone, who I think his entourage of bodyguards was like 16 deep. He was yeah. really crazily protected. He eventually just realized, like, I, I'm, going, I'm going to authorize the assassination of Bugs Moran to just yeah. get, get rid of the problem. It was after they shot James Caan in that uh, that toll booth that, that he decided. Booth. Yeah, was... going out to Long Island. Um, so, basically, what happened is Capone was under, had to respond to a subpoena in uh, Miami-Dade where mm-hmm. he had... Engage, you know, he's a gangster, and they're trying to put him away. Yeah. <laughs> they they called him in for questioning about his finances. So he went in front of the DA, which yeah. gave him the perfect alibis. Brilliant. So yeah. again, we see his modus operandi here. He gives himself these brilliant alibis. Yeah, he realized that this was the perfect opportunity to put a hit out on Moran because he would be out of town in front of a, you know the DA in Miami and just. It it is brilliant, and so and he realized the FBI was still in its infancy. <laughs> yeah, Hoover was a baby. <laughs> <laughs> so he um he had one of his uh, associates call Bugs Moran and say, "Hey, listen to this. That's some great whiskey for cheap." <laughs> I hijacked one of Capone's trucks, and I have a ton of cases of like the highest quality whiskey that Capone was shipping. And he offered a price that Bugs Moran just could not turn down. So they set a meeting at this. Um, it was like $50 a barrel or something. $50 a, a, a crate or a case. Case, yeah. And it was... Leave it to the one Jew guy in the show to be like, I remember the price. <laughs> <laughs> 
so um so this meeting was set up for the goods to be delivered to this fake business that Moran had and Moran agreed that he would meet this source to purchase the whiskey the business mm-hmm. the business was was basically a garage like it was a front for uh, a warehouse where a lot of illegal booze was unloaded and loaded and shipped around the city and, and there was a nearby hotel yeah. where Owen's guys were staking it out they were saying yeah we're taxi drivers we work all day and we need a place to – or we work all night. We need a place to stay. But they, for some reason, insisted on having the front rooms that were closer to the road. Yeah. So they were they were staking out this uh, this garage like – So methodically. It's, it's really incredible. And so Moran said, sure, I'll meet you at this garage. And so on uh, uh, February 14th, uh, 1929 – this meeting was set up at the garage, and Moran and a bunch of his associates descended on the location. Ah, they thought it was Moran. Yeah. So right before, um, right before the, the the massacre happened, this like truck driver was driving, and he hit a cop car, and he got out to talk to the cops. You know, like, hey, what's going on? And they just waved him off. They told him to go away. He did a Jedi mind trick. He's not the gangsters you're looking for. You can go about your business. Move along. So this truck driver later said that it was really – it was odd that he had hit a cop car and then nothing bad had happened. So So, back there when I hit that cop car. (laughs) So uh, a bunch of people showed up to the garage and suddenly these two cops show up. Mm-hmm. And they or were they? <laughs> and they round up seven men. Um, one we of should the, mention that mobsters were like kind of used to that. I mean, so many cops were on the take. Yeah, that they were used to like, oh, we're gonna get busted up. All right, we'll pay these guys off. We'll go through the motions. Maybe we'll get brought in, but we'll get let out in a few hours. Yeah, the technique was to never like run from the cops. Like, yeah, the the gangster code was don't run from the cops. You just go in, and and the other uh, mobsters will help get you out of prison. You know, by paying off the cops or something like that. And so what's interesting, though, is that several uh, or a couple of the people that were rounded up were not gangsters. One was there was a mechanic. There was a there was a one dude who just liked hanging out with gangsters. Yeah, he was an orthodontist. (laughs) Uh, And he liked (laughs) the idea of a mob orthodontist like this guy's teeth has got his teeth. are they're, They're taken out. We can't take him to a dentist, man. We have to take him to the mob dentist, David Duchovny. What? There's um, some movie where he played a mob doctor. Uh, okay. Shut up. I, I remember that movie. It looks fucking It's called terrible. Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. <laughs> Don't Tell Mom the Orthodontist Loves Gangsters. Uh, David and, Duchovny has a ponytail. Uh, so these seven guys were rounded up, brought in, put, put against the wall in this garage, and then two other dudes show up. And these are people dressed in civilian clothing – and they have Tommy guns and Mm -hmm. these guys are, have been positioned standing against the wall expecting to, you know, a a typical raid to happen to get arrested when these two guys run in with Tommy guns and execute everyone. Yeah. And the cops, I think pulled out shotguns too. So it's like two shotguns, two Tommy guns, and they just fucking tear these seven guys apart. Like, like they were just, there was blood everywhere. And there was like a German shepherd that was belonging to one of the guys, just like a barking, Dude. These, like, ladies upstairs heard it. It was just fucking mayhem. Yeah, they shot them in. Basically, their entire bodies were riddled with bullets. Backs, yeah. Some of them, legs, like, fell arms. apart, basically. Yeah, apparently some of them almost fell apart. D- their dicks. Their dicks probably had bullets in them. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, they shot all of their dicks off. Shot all yeah. their dicks off. Uh, w- w- one, the mechanic was still alive after the ori- initial burst of gunfire, so one of the... Uh, I guess we could just say it now. They weren't actual cops. One of yeah. the one of the fake cops walked up and just blasted his face with a shotgun. Yeah. Um. And then they hightailed it out of there. But the brilliant part of the scheme is, since they were cops, they had the other guys put their hands up. Yeah. So it looked like everything was under control. Like, oh, right. Well, there's a shootout, but it looks like the cops are arresting the guys who got them. Yeah. So totally bysta- bystanders were like, oh, this makes sense. Uh, yeah. Now, those people that had been in the hotel that were staking out the garage had made a mistake because they were under instructions to give a go ahead to those cops when Bugs Moran showed up. 
Now, this was uh, mm-hmm. uh, February 14th, and like in this country, in the current era, they were having a horrible cold snap. And it was especially in Chicago, yeah, the was, windy city. It was Chicago. And so it was super, super cold. And everyone who was showing up to this meeting was really bundled up. Yeah, wearing big coats. And one of the guys was wearing a coat that he was about the same build as Moran and wearing a very similar coat to Moran. Yeah. So they gave the go ahead to the fake cops that like, hey, it looks like Moran is here. Go ahead. And so when Moran actually showed up. The cops and the and the and the two other hitmen were already inside the garage. And when Moran saw the cop car, he figured, "Oh, it's a raid," and he bailed. He took he did off. like a Bugs Bunny, like Woo! and like ran <laughs> off. Yeah, he just U turned and took off. Um, so it's uh, seven men have been shot to death. Bugs Moran, not one of them. All of the perpetrators have gotten away, and this dog is howling. Uh, so, mm-hmm. uh, a, 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 an onlooker. It's like, what's going on? Goes into the garage, sees a bloody mess, and Ugh. calls the, the real cops. And they show up, yeah. and it is a sensation. Yeah. The media shows up. It's in all the late editions. Uh, Bugs Moran shows up to his business. And when he finds out what happened, he says, "There's only Capone kills like this. And yeah. Uh, one of the guys is still alive, and so they take him to the hospital. And this is yeah, one he of, lives for a couple hours. Yeah, this is one of the mafioso. And when the police were like trying to get details, what happened? What happened? Because of the code of silence practiced by gang members, he doesn't tell them anything. I, I think he might have even said, "I wasn't shot." Yeah, he said as he's dying of like eighteen <laughs> bullet holes. Yeah. He says, I'm not shot. <laughs> <laughs> the code of silence is also the he code ate of a bunch of bullets idiot. for lunch. <laughs> and then they got hot in his stomach and shot out of him. <laughs> yeah. um, so this was like, like we said, the media had been covering all this stuff, glamorizing a lot of the mafia violence. They were on all the front pages. But, uh, you know, his, historians disagree over this next point. But a, a lot of them, you know really suggest that it's the case that this was kind of the final straw this wasn't yeah. fun this was just gross and it's not tr- fun anymore guys. yeah it's not fun to, to watch this mechanic was pretty much innocent he had like tons of children too it's like seven it just... children Ugh. and those seven children were all killed in the massacre but back then seven children was like having one child yeah, yeah. it's Compared like a to- it's like an O'Neill family. That's, yeah, that's like his parents would say, "What are you gonna have some children? What are you gonna have? <laughs> I've had seven children. That's not <laughs> enough children." Um. So at this point, two. You know, there's two subsequent stories. One of which is tracking down who who did this murder, and you know, basically they they couldn't. The police couldn't figure it out. Um. They looked into some of Capone's associates. They uh, asked. Capone, did you do this murder? He said no, and that was basically the end. Yeah. Well, we're but back to of, square one. I said it like this, though. No. <laughs> no. Well, no one wanted to touch, uh, no one wanted to touch uh, Capone. Like that, that newspaper guy I think I was telling you about, I think this is him, too. He, Capone said, hey, come on. This is how not of a, this is what not a criminal I am, if that makes any sense. He went down to the police station, walked around and asked like every single cop, you want to arrest me? You want to arrest me? You want to arrest me? No, see. It's like, (laughs) that was his way of convincing him. Look how afraid everyone is of arresting me. That means I'm not a criminal. Uh, So they eventually some of the members uh, that, that um, one of uh, Capone's assassins who was went by the name Killer. <laughs> That's a good cover story. They were uh, running out of nicknames at that point. Yeah, he yeah. was he was arrested. Criminal. Johnny <laughs> the criminal Morelli. <laughs> he was arrested. Johnny the guy who committed the crime. <laughs> uh oh boy. Um so he he was arrested and uh uh, accused of this but he had what became known as the blonde alibi um and his feet... i was killing someone else at the same time <laughs> his his blonde girlfriend uh and i think fiance actually testified that no he was with me on the night of in question 
he was killing me on the night in question. <laughs> um, however, uh, a, a, I think it was a, actually one year almost exactly later, that guy was found murdered. Uh, by himself. By Well, by the Moran gang, who left a Valentine's Day card at the scene of his assassination. Um, so... Th- when he was killed, they found a Tommy gun on him and mm-hmm. using forensics, which were actually pretty new at the time, they were able yeah. to trace it back to the murders that had taken place in the garage in Chicago. So yeah. it's not, you know, it's not for sure that he participated in the murder, but he definitely had access to a weapon that had taken right. place during the murder. So you can sort of you know, draw your own conclusion that he was probably involved in some way. Using the burgeoning science of semen analysis, they were able to identify who was part of the murder. Who jacked off on the gun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but this was such a tragic and disgusting occurrence that the, the local law enforcement really s- decided to step it up and the FBI decided to step it up. And this is when the real era of Elliot Ness and the untouchables starts because yeah. it was kind That's of That's like the glamorized side of it. It was actually the, like basically the IRS that took down Capone. But... Yeah, eventually, yeah, but but uh this is the time where, you know, the prohibition enforcement grew to such an extent that they actually had a budget that was commensurate with the kind of problems that they were facing and they were able to go after a lot of these gangsters not only in Chicago but elsewhere um yeah. in uh, in the country and they were able to you know go after Moran go after uh, Capone and really try to break up their criminal empire right. this is when they came out and said now let me welcome everyone to the wild wild west a state that's untouchable like Elliot Ness Oh boy, that that was another uh, instance of Lee acting alone. What? Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but so yeah, he Valentine's was... Day. That's uh when Tupac was shot. <laughs> so that that is actually true. Um, that the IRS got uh Capone because they realized that hey, uh, we can't get him for any of these activities do- he's doing, but he's making so much money off of these illegal activities and not paying taxes on them. Because he didn't own anything, like yeah. he didn't own any real estate because he couldn't have like a trail that led back to him. And like everything, all of his assets were actually in his family's name, like his car, his wife owned, and one of his houses, his mom owned, the other house is his wife owned. And so um, the but- IRS like took a dead body and held it up against a window and mm. interrogated it. And then they shot the dead body through the head. And then Capone was finally like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll testify. Right. And then Sean Connery, uh, won a, um, uh, best supporting actor nomination or, uh, you know, award. He also won a knife V gunfight, but, <laughs> but also lost. Um, so, yeah, so they got Capone for tax evasion, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Served some of that time in Fort Leavenworth, which is actually where I was born, mm-hmm. and the rest some of it. Some of it at The Rock, where he ironically was cellmates with Sean Connery. <laughs> 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 but think of it in the perspective of, you know, the Great Depression. A lot of people are poor, or, you know, and people are, like, paying their, their taxes, right? Um, but... Um, all these law-abiding citizens are paying their taxes, and meanwhile, you know, Capone is not paying anything, and he's this rich guy. So, like, the folk hero status of um, Capone, you know, really um, started to crumble. To, to, to crumble, and this was right after the the Black Tuesday, the fall of the stock market. I mean, this was like a, a month after. I no, this was a while after yeah. the Valentine's Day massacre was 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 uh, right later, after the yeah. crash. Um so the um the uh during during the 30s other sort of gangster folk heroes propped up and they were, you know, less less like a huge like imperial crime figure. It was more like Bonnie and Clyde and John Dillinger uh and those kinds of people. Um but at, that also they also replaced Moran. He got arrested and his you know, he started to lose all of his income and he eventually had to resort to bank robbery. Like this was a, you know, a criminal, a uh, criminal cr- a crime boss in the north side of Chicago who eventually had to resort to actually participating in a bank robbery himself. And he went to 
prison, did a 10-year stint, got out, mm. and then immediately robbed another bank and was arrested and sent back for 10 years and eventually died in prison. Um, but then his children gave him a like a little robot to help him because he was losing his memory. But again, he taught the robot how to rob banks with him. <laughs> did you actually watch that movie? Every time I see it on Netflix, I'm like, man, eh, this doesn't look good. I saw it on a plane. It's adorable. <laughs> I um, love that movie. But uh but Capone uh, It's President Nixon in a robot. Okay, come on. Capone went, was when he was in prison, he started to uh suffer the effects of untreated syphilis. It spread to his brain and he started to go crazy. He uh you know, while he was in prison, he kept thinking that enemies were after him. His uh intelligence apparently degraded to the point that he had the intelligence of like a 12-year-old. Um, and he was eventually released because he was so enfeebled, uh, mentally enfeebled, that he wasn't considered a danger, and he eventually died of complications from syphilis. The first time he was in jail, like he he did like a year stint for for um, possession of a concealed weapon or something like that. Um, but he uh, was running the whole operation by phone, and so he was still criming. But this time, yeah, as you said, he was so you know mentally incompetent that uh, he couldn't really do anything. So they let him out, and uh, the you know Chicago crime lived on in uh, under the you know stewardship of others. Um, and the same thing happened in New York as well. But they had to diversify their operations because in 1933 uh uh prohibition was repealed and people could drink happily as much as they wanted uh so importing illegal booze was no longer as um you know lucrative as it had been and this is you know around the time that the organi- organized crime starts getting into narcotics and they are partially to blame for a lot of the spread of narcotics throughout the like forties, yeah. fifties, and on. Um, this is when a little-known gangster known as Jack Napier decided to kill <laughs> the Wayne family, <laughs> giving rise to the superhero Dark Man. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Gene, what do you think about the Saint Valentine's Day massacre? Is it an inside job or not? Uh, you know, normally I like to be the contrarian, but it seems pretty cut and dry that there was at least more than one guy there. <laughs> yeah, it's not necessarily an inside job in the sense that, like, we don't have direct proof of, uh... Government involvement? Yeah, government or law enforcement involvement, but it seems pretty clear that it it was, you know, a mafia gang uh, putting a hit out on another one. It's a conspiracy in the strictest definition yeah like a criminal conspiracy more than one guy was there (laughs) (laughs) and lee would you agree with that yeah definitely an inside job i mean there's some other um there's some other conspiracy theory explanations that it was actually was the cops um and there's one that i think like that they they said that the jewish gang the purple gang was behind it so uh, i i wish that was true but no unfortunately it doesn't look like uh doesn't look like the the Jews were behind this one, uh, and uh, <laughs> it was uh, probably Capone. Yeah, I think it was definitely a conspiracy. There was lots of people involved, and uh, yeah, inside uh, job. So uh, we, I want to thank Jordan for being on our show last week, and especially for everyone who listened to the show because he tweeted about it. Um, we had a lot oh, of yeah. really good response to the last episode, uh, and yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, uh, thanks for listening to that. <laughs> Jordan the Podcaster Morris. Uh, but yeah, thanks you for everyone for, who wrote in about that episode to, to tell us uh, that you liked it. That was a fun one to do, and I hope that you liked this one as well. We also had uh, a phone call to our hotline. Uh, we had two. One of them is a bit long, so I'm our not... teen hotline. Yeah, uh, one of them is a bit long, so I'm not going to play it. But uh, somebody called in to suggest we cover the topic of uh, Courtney Love killing... Kurt Cobain. Ooh. Uh, which oh. I don't really, I honestly don't really know anything about. Well, uh, she did it, so. Oh, okay. Huh, it smells like teen spirit. Um, I also want to plug that I just Googled searched Frank Stallone, Jordan Morris, and there is an interview, and Jordan's wearing a tuxedo interviewing uh, Frank Stallone. You should definitely watch this. This Frank looks great. St- Frank Stallone wearing a tuxedo shirt. 
Um, but we, <laughs> yes. did, we, did, we did have a really brief call that I do want to play. This is from January 30th, uh, just a week or so ago. So here we go. Gentlemen, this is John from Tucson, Arizona. Uh, it's January 30th. So happy Hitler Day. <laughs> so yeah, thank you for remembering. Thank you. Banger for was just applauding that. That uh, January thirtieth, nineteen thirty-three, is a weird running joke that I, I like to insert in most of the shows we do. So thank you. What was it, John from Tucson? Thank you very much for calling. Um, but yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, you can call our hotline four one three. Johnny, the caller, Tucson. <laughs> Four one three two two five nineteen sixty three, or you can email us insidejobscast at gmail dot com, or tweet at us at insidejobscast. Um, you could use a Chicago typewriter to send a bullet ridden <laughs> message on the side of Brian's apartment. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you, Lee, for for doing so much hard work to uh, to get into this show. I thought you did a great job. Thank you. I mean, you're welcome. Uh, yeah, good and, job, Lee. And Gene, thank you very much for uh, setting your clock ahead to be right on time for the show. <laughs> Wait, is is Hollywood like in a different time zone as New York and San Francisco? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> so, but no, thank you, thank you both for uh, for appearing on the show. And uh, <laughs> sorry, Gene is texting me for some reason. Um, uh, thank you both for it's falling apart. At it the is end falling here. apart right at the end. Thanks for listening. We will be back in two weeks. Until then, follow the money. I want his podcast dead. I want his Brian dead. I want his Gene dead. I want his Lee dead. I want the Jews dead. I want the Irish dead. I want me dead. I want to burn down the podcast and I want to piss on the ashes. I want Hitler dead. I want Himmler dead. I want the Lindbergh baby dead. I want Che Guevara dead. I want JFK dead. I want Jack Ruby dead. I want Lee Harvey Oswald dead. I want Robert De Niro dead. I want Al Pacino dead. Brian De Palma. <laughs> dead. For making that and that piece of shit. I want Scarface dead. <laughs> um...